With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 71st episode of my show. I've been doing this show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also do it to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions that they can use to improve their own information security and to better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And of course, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you listening in. If any of you are interested in sponsoring one of my shows each month, perhaps on a specific privacy, information security, IT, or compliance topic, then just get in touch. And please keep all of your feedback and questions coming in. I really do love getting all your messages. I'm not able to answer them all very quickly. In fact, I've got a big backlog of them right now. But I do try to get to you in one way or another, if not on my show, to answer them uh, by email. So my January Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of December. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. I've been providing my free tips since 2007, and I've been doing this in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees because, you know, the the funding for that is often very little to non-existent. So I'm really happy that so many organizations send those tips on to their employees. Now you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now to my tip for the month. January 28th is Data Privacy Day, International Data Privacy Day. Now, for the 11th year in a row, I'm happy to report that upon my request to the governor of Iowa, who has uh, been a different person, three different folks filled that seat over those years, um, I've been able to have them all officially proclaim January 28th as Iowa Data Privacy Day. Now, this is a great month 
for all of you to stay really hyper aware of the apps and the services you use. So here's my tip for the month. Read the privacy notice for the apps you use. And I would bet you that a lot of you probably don't, (laughs) but please do because you might be shocked to see all of the different places and people that get copies of your data that your data is being shared with or how your data is being used or how your device is being modified by that app. Now, if an app does not have a privacy notice, simply do not use it. Uninstall it if you've already downloaded it. And if the privacy notice is not written clearly, contact that organization and ask them for a clarification. I've done that a lot. And uh, I've always been glad I did because oftentimes I found out that my data, if I would have kept their app, would be used in ways that I did not want it to be used. Now, if you contact them or you try to contact them, but you see in their privacy notice that they have absolutely no way listed for you to get in touch with them. If you're in the United States, report them to the FTC, report them to your state attorney general's office, and or report them to the Better Business Bureau. You know, I've done that often. In fact, I just did my uh, most recent one two days ago. Now, if you're in other countries, you can also report them to your data protection authority. I've had organizations tell me if they don't hear from customers or the users of their products that privacy is important to them, then they don't think it matters. And so they're going to do whatever they can with your data. So let them know it matters to you. To you. So let them know. So now on to the topic for my show today. So I've received many questions over the past two years from listeners and a commonly recurring question that I get is about the dark web and the deep web. What are they and how do people get to them and what are the security and privacy issues involved with the dark web and many, many other interesting questions. So today I'm really so excited to discuss the dark web with someone who I believe to be one of the most foremost authorities on not only the dark web and the deep web, but someone who helped to build and may know more about Tor than anyone else. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Lumen, who has more than 30 years of global scale technology experience in a variety of domains, including information security and systems administration and data management. Andrew's interests lie in the intersection of technology and humans, and Andrew successfully grew a few companies as a co-founder and a top executive for organizations I know many of you have heard of, such as Tech Target and the Tor Project, Farsight Security, and Dark Owl. Andrew also advises the U.S. and its allies, having worked on Safer, Warfighter, Mimex, Sharkseer, Crisp, and others. 
Now, Andrew has also worked as a technology advisor to Interpol's Crimes Against Children initiative. And you can see a lot more about Andrew on my radio show site. Andrew, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to talk about this because there's so many questions I have, too. But I think first it might help our listeners. And we do have listeners from around the world. And also, I'm really happy that we have a lot of students in college and in high school that listen in as well. And I've had a lot of them ask me, well, what is the dark web and what's the deep web? So I thought maybe we could start with um, having you describe what the deep web is. Sure. The deep web is everything on the internet that is hopefully behind authentication, meaning a username and password or some sort of firewall or physical access to get access to the data. So think of things like you're using Google or Yandex or Bing and um, you go to search for something you would hope that your email does not show up in search results. Your bank account information does not show up, um, nor would your corporate files or agency files or anything you'd want to keep private should not be showing up as an, on, on an open search. And that's mm-hmm. generally the idea the the deep web is, is vast because um, it's all your private data. And it's someplace uh, basically just whatever anybody wants to put out there on their own website, right? I mean, if they don't have it indexed, or like you said, if they have no search engine optimization, why would they be considered in the deep web if uh, they can't be found through search engines? Or is that mostly, yeah. So so basically, it's not a, a really scary place. It's just a vast universe uh, out there that's part of the internet, but... Let's compare that now to the dark web. So how is the dark, what is the dark web and how is it different from the deep web? So the dark web requires special software to get access to special addressing. So in the case of Tor, if you wanted to get access to .onions, um, there is no place. You can't just go to your normal browser, type in, you know, um, privacyprofessor.onion. No, it mm-hmm. won't resolve. It won't work. You have to have the Tor software installed to do that. And it's the same for other dark nets. If you've heard of I2P or ZeroNet or FreeNet, um, all of them require to have their special software installed to get access to their sort of, it's called a dark net or a dark web because mm-hmm. you purposely have to go there and you purposely have to install the software and take steps to find the sites you want to visit. And, Places like, you know, the the internet search engines will not search there. They don't. There's no easy way to put into Google or Yandex or whatever and say, you know, find me every dot onion. It just they, they don't exist. They don't crawl it. They don't pay attention to it. Hmm. So from the way you kind of describe that, it sounds like there's there's not just one dark web. Then it sounds like there's many different. Dark webs based upon the tools you're using to get there? Yes. So there's, I think, around 20 right now. Um, oh. About four or five are popularly used, though. 
So who uses them? I mean, they're set up. Um, is it legal to go to the dark web? I know that's a, a popular question I've gotten over the last year. Uh, it's like, oh, am I going to get in trouble if I go to the dark web because it's illegal? Uh, the answer there is it depends where you are. Um, mm. I know in countries like Russia, China, and some of the Eastern European countries, it could be potentially illegal to have the software installed and to use it. For countries like the United States, in Europe, in most of South America, um, it's generally illegal. But if you're, you know, you're you're caught doing something, having these dark nets installed on your devices, your phone, your tablet, your laptop, you know, will raise some suspicion of why would you be there? Only criminals go there. Mm. So if it raises suspicions, then could you possibly, and this is another popular question I've had, if you go to a specific uh, dark net, could you be arrested just for visiting a certain one? Generally, no. Um, but again, it depends on your local jurisdiction. Um, I know in China, you know, starting up tour will definitely get you under government monitoring and oh. will definitely start getting people to ask you questions. You know, same with, same with Russia, same with a lot of Eastern European countries, just, just using it alone. You know, it may be legal by some definition of legal. But mm. it will definitely uh, get your attention you might not want, even if you're just innocently trying to go, you know, see what's out there. So, like, if you have if you go there when you're in the U.S. and let's say you travel, and I know you travel a lot around uh, the world, if, you know, you happen to be in China or Russia and, you know, maybe you forget and you use your computer to go out there, the fact that you're connecting through a different uh, ISP, perhaps, or because you're coming from that different location, that's going to change uh, whether or not you're being monitored or who's monitoring you. Would that be an accurate statement? Yes. I, can, I mean, here here in the U.S., I can start up tour in particular, and you know, no one will look twice at it. Um, cause it's, it's fairly well used from when I was in Shanghai last year in China, you know, mm-hmm. the tour didn't work and I'm sure I set off alarms somewhere in some hotel where mm. my tour connection kept getting denied. <laughs> oh, okay. So they just shut you down right away when you yeah. tried to use it. So you didn't even have a chance to get there to begin with. Um, so you're talking about tour and I ha- I know I have a lot of listeners they've heard about tour so is tour a browser is it a network could you maybe provide a you know like a high level overview for our wide variety of listeners who want to know more about that of course so tour is multiple things um, and it's somewhat confusing but think of it as tour has two modes of operation <clears throat> it has the VPN mode, or virtual private network mode, which just separates who you are from where you're going on the internet. You know, think of it like if you use a VPN for your for your company or just for your own privacy, um, you're connecting to someone else's server, and you appear to be coming from their server, not from wherever your actual, say, your phone is. 
in the world. And Tor just basically has strung three VPNs together so that, mm. you know, I'll be here in America. My first hop to be in Japan. My next hop to be Brazil. And I could pop out somewhere in France. And if I went to, you know, say, um, the, the BBC, they would think I'm coming from France because all they see is a request from a French IP address going to BBC and they'd probably serve up a French version of the page. Um, mm. They'd have no idea I actually came from Brazil through Japan and that I'm actually sitting in America. Interesting. Um, so, so that's the first mode of tour. The mm-hmm. second mode that gets just about as much attention is the classic darknet mode where you have Tor installed. Typically, people just use Tor browser, which is a modified Firefox, and they let Tor do all its connections behind the scenes, and then they, they get access to, say, an Onion site. You know, just say Privacy Professor of Onion, and mm-hmm. um, that's what they... That's the darknet mode where you've never left the Tor network. You're somewhere, you know, in any of the potential millions of clients connected, someone is hosting that .onion site, and now you've gone to browse it. Hmm. So when you go there, let's say somebody did create a, a privacy professor .onion site. Would that look like a copy of mine on the regular internet, or how does that work? It Do they just would look like what it... So it would look like whatever you want to put there. Um, some places, ah. like, the BBC, like the BBC, they mm-hmm. do serve up uh, the mobile version of their website to the .onion world, um, mm. thinking that it's, it's faster and more accessible for people behind where the BBC is blocked. Um, or, I mean, it's just, it's just an address, so you could, host, you could host a completely different website there than on your general Internet address. So, and, and we're, I don't know if you're talking about the BBC as just an example, or maybe they actually have um, a site, a .onion site in the dark web, but why would, like, a news agency want to have a site in the dark web as well as on the, the regular internet or the more visible internet? Uh, there are a few reasons, and so the New York Times, the BBC, um, and the CIA actually all have .onion sites that they mm-hmm. have come out publicly and said, we host this site, this is us. It's not a copy, it's not a, you know, clone. Um, and the reason, at least the BBC and New York Times do it, one is a coolness factor. You know, they're leading, they're leading news journalist organizations, they're leading the guard of, you know, here's our acceptance of technology and they've put out a dot onion site to say that, you know, well, if someone is behind um, some sort of censorship, then maybe they can get, get on the tour and get access to our website to see a different side of the story. Mm. Interesting. So are they kind of outside of uh <sighs> And I don't know if this would even be applicable, but are they outside of liability issues then when they can put things down there? Or are they still uh, also susceptible to being liable for what they print uh, in the dark web? They are still 
susceptible and liable because they've still put up, they still set it off, like what organization behind it, whether you go to bbc.co.uk or bbc.com or bbcsomething.onion, you know, it's all, they've come out and said it's all us. So uh, just being in the dark web doesn't mean you're out in the wild, wild west completely. <laughs> you still you still need to make sure that you um, know what you're doing and that you will be accountable for the activities that go on there. Now, for the how most about, part, yes. <laughs> for the most part. Well, how about law enforcement? I mean, for, like... Do they go into the dark web? Do they use that a lot? It seems like they would, maybe. So they are there. Um, having worked with law enforcement literally all around the world, they are on the dark net, and mostly because that's where their targets and their criminals are. And, um, you know, otherwise they generally wouldn't be there. They have enough crime to worry about besides some new technology they need to learn. Right, right. But, well, that's interesting when you say they have enough to worry about. So, and this is just a really wild guess if you have it, but when you compare the publicly available internet that we all, you know, most of my listeners just are used to using with the amount of uh, content within the dark web, is it like a 50-50? Maybe you have the same amount of information in the regular internet as you do in the dark web, or is there just a vast, larger amount of uh, information in the dark dark net, kind of like an iceberg? Maybe you have the publicly available internets, the visible part of the iceberg, and then you have all this other down below. Uh, I don't know if that's something that you've looked into before. Yes. So there's studies out there, and it really comes down to quantity versus quality, and that the quantity of crime and information available is on the open Internet. You know, that's where, you know, if you want to go buy a luxury Louis Vuitton bag, um, it may be real or not, but you can get it for, you know, 90% off if you go to this random website and get mm-hmm. your credit card information. Um, and there's exact same sort of scams and criminals on the dark web. Mm-hmm. Generally on the dark web tends to be the, the quality is higher, meaning that the criminals are more serious. They're more brazen about, you know, do you want to buy drugs? Do you want to buy fake IDs? Do you want to buy, you know, information, insider information? All that's available on the dark web. And they, those sorts of people generally do not post on the open internet because, you know, on the open internet, eventually some law enforcement can eventually figure out who you are, where you are. Um, and on the dark net, it's designed to defeat that sort of discovery. Right. So you don't actually, when you're communicating with someone on the dark net, why Joe might not be Joe. That's just a pseudonym for whoever you happen to be talking with then. Right. Do you know what countries use the dark web the most? Or uh, is that hard to tell just because of the way that you can kind of cover your tracks down there? Uh. It can be hard to tell. Tor was funded for a while to actually track um, client connection. 
to just to get to the country level to see like which countries are actually using Tor. And it turns out mostly it's the U.S. and Europe. And, you know, in, hmm. in talking to users and surveys, a lot of it's because that's, there's a high bandwidth. Like you're, you're covered in bandwidth. It's easy to get access to these things. Or satellite or slow DSL or something like that. So when you're talking about the quality of the, the content and, and going down there and who's getting it and the criminals and so on, would it be safe to say that probably all of those um, data files that have been breached, like all the Equif- the Equifax files, all the, the healthcare files, all of that, would it be fairly safe bet to say probably a lot of that is being resold on the, the dark net? Yes. Um, and because, so on the first of the, the high level, yes, you, if you, if you happen to come across, you know, let's say Equifax's entire database, um, you're going to want to figure out how to monetize it and sell it as a criminal. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are buyers out there, there are markets that specialize in information buying and selling. Um, and then at another level, so they, every criminal has to advertise, here's, here's what I have, and they give you a sample. Um, and mm-hmm. from those samples, you can glean a lot of info of how real is this or not, because at a, you know, another level, criminals are criminals, they're all trying to pull a scam on each other, and we'll often take all these samples, compile them together, and say, no, I have a brand new Equifax breach. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, it's been unannounced in the news, and here's new material. And as you study these breaches for a while, you start to realize, you know, a lot of the same information is being passed around, and maybe 90% of it is old you've seen before, but it's that 10% that's new. That's what gets the attention of, like, where did this come from, and how did you get it? Right, right. Well, I have a lot more questions for you about this, but right now it's time to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Uh, Today I'm speaking with Andrew Lumen about the dark web and the dark net. I am your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as uh, have show topic suggestions using my email, Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my privacyguidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. are listening to data security and privacy with the privacy professor if you have a question or comment about the program feel free to send an email to rebecca harold at rebecca harold.com that's rebecca harold at rebecca harold.com now back to data security and privacy with the privacy professor Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Andrew Lumen about the dark web. So Andrew gave us a really good overview of the dark web and the deep web during the first part of the show. So Andrew, now let's say people have had their interests peaked and they want to get down there uh, and see what is in the dark net themselves. What kind of security should they have loaded on their computers uh, if they do plan to go into the dark net? Okay. What I generally advise, you know, if, if you only have one computer, um, mm-hmm. you know, have antivirus up to date or anti-malware, whatever you want to call it, have it up to date have, uh, you know, create a different user that does not have any sort of admin permission so that someone can't go installing software for you and, you know, uh, be up to date in your patches. And that will take care of your main operating system. Generally, I advise people to either go get a throwaway laptop, you know, buy something off Craigslist, or if you want to do it on a phone, you know, there are cheap phones out there, uh, generally Android, that you can use that will just keep everything separate from your normal, you know, life computer. So should anyone ever give their actual name uh, when they're in the dark net or does it depend on where they're at in the dark net? Generally, you should assume that uh, not to give up any real identity information. You don't know who you're talking to at first and, you know, even undercover agents after months undercover will start to divulge information that the person they're talking to can then use to start pinpointing where they are in the world, who they are, what their, you know, their assessment is of the person and, um, you know, basically build a rapport with the person and the other person is doing the same thing the undercover is doing. They may be trying to keep their information secret um, and everything can be used both ways, you know, to help you or to hurt you. So you, you, we've talked about Tor, and of course, uh, you were part of that project for many years and, and led it. Um, what other types of browsers or uh, ways to get into the dark net are there, or are there any others that have the same type of security built in that Tor does? There are a few. So there's Tor Browser, which is majority of it is just, is just Firefox. Um, mm-hmm. There's a new one called Brave, which is based on Chromium, which is the open source mm-hmm. version of Google Chrome, which some people believe is more secure. Um, it's definitely faster, but uh, you can get to Tor through Brave. And then there's 
things like uh, I2P and ZeroNet, which actually install as a process on your machine, and you use whichever browser you want to go browse their networks because they translate between your browser and their darknet. Mm, interesting. So how about two um, operating systems? I mean, what if you have an old, um, you know, Windows 7? Is Would that be something that would be very vulnerable in the darknet that you wouldn't want to go visit, uh, visiting down there with? I would say if you're running something, you know, five years or more mm-hmm. older, you're going to be vulnerable anywhere on the Internet, never mind the darknet. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... So, you know, I mean, the the easiest, cheapest thing is to go download a copy of Ubuntu Linux. It's a free software. I've also worked with people, with students actually on Raspberry Pis and mm-hmm. helping them get on the darknet through a Raspberry Pi. I mean, a Raspberry Pi is just a single board computer. It's about 75 U.S. dollars. Um, and it comes with pre-installed software that you can then run and get on, you know, various dark nets with some effort. The easiest way, of course, would be to have a phone or a laptop or a desktop or something that either runs a modern version of Windows, um, Mac, uh, Macintosh OS X, or, you know, like Ubuntu Linux. It's a free download and install. You can even run the Ubuntu off of a USB drive. Mm, wow. So, and that, I have uh, Ubuntu as far as on about three different uh, Raspberry Pis, and those work. I mean, it works really cool. Uh, you could use them for a lot more devi- or a lot more activities than just going to the dark net as well. So uh, they're really, right. really neat learning tools to have. Besides that, so. We talked about reselling uh, personal data on the dark web. What are some other types of activities that go on? You talked about selling drugs, uh, selling other types of uh, items. What are some other activities that you've seen on the dark net over the years? So the most, I go through the most to least common, I guess. The most common is botnets that, People, you know, people have developed um, botnets so that your infected computer can go get its next set of commands from predominantly Tor addresses, .onion addresses. And when you look at sort of Tor as a whole, you see botnet traffic is the number one thing on there. Number two is child abuse. And um, the forums and sites that provide that content, um, as whole what it is, are the most so the second most popular thing you see on the dark net just by sheer number of requests and searches. And then number three is really sort of everything else, which is a mix of forums where people are talking about, you know, whatever they want to talk about to marketplaces where the marketplaces are the ones, you know, think of like an eBay or Amazon or something for the dark net where you can go buy, you know, cocaine, MDMA, all sorts of drug, hard, hard drugs, soft drugs, any drugs that are illegal, um, stolen identities, you can get fake passports, fake currency, and, you know, you can also buy, you know, court hacking software that if you want to break into Windows machines or break into Macs, you, know, you can go buy that software out there. 
And when you talk about buying it, that's where uh, the purchases, are they made almost all with cryptocurrency or are there other ways that they're getting paid? It's almost all cryptocurrency and Bitcoin would be the most popular, but a lot of the other sort of privacy coins like a Monero or a Zcash um, have also started to rise in prominence. So you said that the second most was uh, the children pornography and so on. I, I saw in your bio, of course, that you're working with Interpol. So that's really disturbing that that, that is going on so often in the dark net, especially given that uh, it goes on so much from what I've seen in news reports and so on, just on the regular web as well. Um <sighs> Are they, I mean, with your work, and I know that you you can't talk about details, but as far as uh, just the increase or decrease, are you seeing things getting worse with uh, the sharing of those types of, of files, photos, and, and videos, or is it getting better with uh, the different activities that that Interpol and other law enforcement are, are doing in the dark net? Uh, in general, the amount of child abuse or child pornography is growing. Um, mm. And I think it's also partially a detection is that, you know, like in the U.S., any provider who comes across child abuse or, you know, child pornography has to report it. Um, mm-hmm. And so now you've seen like the Googles and the Facebooks and Microsoft saying, well, we've developed automated detection to what we think is child abuse, and now we're reporting it, you know, in bulk. And so you're seeing um, a vast increase in the amount of reports, and they're looking at mm-hmm. their open, you know, their own networks, uh, things like Google Drive and Google Docs, or, you know, just Facebook and live streaming and all that. And that's what you're seeing them reporting from the mm-hmm. dark net, a lot of the criminals, a lot of the child abusers and the viewers are coming from traditional places where they might have been caught or they might have heard like, hey, there's this darknet thing, everyone's anonymous, I can go post my videos and content, you know, pictures, videos, stories there and have it, you know, get go for more of a niche. Like, you know, this is dedicated to just this segment of child abuse and not anything else and it, it just gets worse from there. Uh, oh, I can imagine. Well, what if somebody goes to the dark net and they run across something like that? I mean, would you say, would you recommend that they report that somewhere or what should they do? I mean, I'm sure it would be highly disturbing to find, but also, you know, you would feel, most people would feel compelled to tell someone do you tell it to the FBI? Do you call Interpol? <laughs> so um, it depends on the country. And, I mean, I'm in the United States. You have to report it to National Center for Missing and Exploited Children because um, they are the law. They're the lawful place to report this stuff. They have a nice form on their website that helps you, you know, just copy and paste the URL and submit it. And a lot of people do that because it's really mm-hmm. easy to run across child abuse in the dark net without even meaning to. And, mm. you know, just like there's wikipedia.org on the open internet, there's um, Tor Wiki or Hidden Wikis on Tor in particular. They're also on ZeroNet. 
and you're trusting that what's behind that link is what the person says it is. So someone writes, you know, click here to, to buy your party drugs. Like, you want to get some ecstasy? Click here. Turns out they click you through to a child abuse site. Um, mm. That you've, you know, then it pops up on your screen. 99% of the world is horrified. You know, either hits back or closes the browser because they don't want to see it. Um, and that's typically what happens. Legally, you're supposed to report it. Um, to say, here's where I found it. And, you know, I, I didn't, obviously, unless 99% of the world is accidentally stumbled across it. They're not actually out there looking for it to, to consume it in any way. Uh, well, I can only imagine what you've seen while you've been out there. Now, so let's, it kind of reminds me of a question somebody asked about whether or not that's found on Silk Road. And I was wondering if uh, you could maybe describe what Silk Road was and, and why the FBI shut it down or if it is still shut down? Sure. So Silk Road was a marketplace and a forum hosted on a dot .onion, which is a Tor darknet site. And mm-hmm. what it... Um, so think of the, the economics of a marketplace. You want to have a lot of buyers coming in buying products from your marketplace because you make money on the fees, the, the transaction fees. You want to have a lot of sellers selling because you have a lot of buyers and yet they're selling the products they want. In any case, it, it creates fees um, for transactions. Of I provided, you know, think of like a, a farmer's market. A farmer's market can provide the space and then charge the vendors to show up at the table and then mm-hmm. they take a, you know, either a, a percent cut or something of the transactions at the end of the day, and that's what Silk Road did. Silk Road, um, person who ran it, was nicknamed as Dread Pirate Roberts, who mm-hmm. was, you know, convicted of, his name is Ross Ulbricht, and was convicted of um, basically, you know, selling illegal goods. But Dread Pirate Roberts, at the time, realized, like, the only way to, to sort of, quote, win this game is to have the most users possible. So, Putting it on that onion already made it difficult because you can't just go to you know your internet search engine and type in Silk Road Onion, like it doesn't respond with anything. There's no, there's nothing there. So, someone allegedly him set up basically come to SilkRoad.com or SilkRoad.com or all these sites that made it point quick and easy to get you know step one download Tor browser, step two copy and paste this address into it, step three create an account. Um, and then step four, if you want to buy, here's how to get Bitcoin. So think of it, you know, as depending where you are in the world, um, you know, it's either like an Amazon or eBay or Souk or some marketplace, you know, e-commerce store. It just mm-hmm. happens to sell stolen goods, illegal goods, things like that. Wow. So it's, was he getting pretty rich by uh, expanding his marketplace in that way? So he was. There was a study out of Carnegie Mellon University, University and I think it was mm-hmm. Nicholas Kristen was the lead author. And mm-hmm. he found, so, so the, the way the markets worked is, at least the way Silk Road worked, is you had to give feedback. So for every purchase, you had to leave a star, you know, one to five star review. And then mm. the idea is that how do you build reputation in an anonymous space? Well, if a bunch of anonymous users have said this vendor's five star, 
versus this other vendor over here is one star. They're both selling the same product. Which one are you likely to buy from? And behavioral economics will say, well, five stars is better than one, so I'm going to buy from the five star. Um, mm-hmm. And so that became a proxy for how many transactions were happening was if every day you scraped the site, like took a copy of it and looked at the changes, you would see how many different, how many reviews showed up. And you could look at, uh, oftentimes they're linked to the product. So you could look up the price and say, this was, you know, one Bitcoin, half a Bitcoin, whatever. And you figure out the conversion rate from Bitcoin to your local currency, US dollars, euros, Chinese, you know, yen, um, rubles, whatever. And you start to get a value. And what uh, the study found was that the Silk Road was probably on the realm of $5 million a month in profit. Wow. <laughs> so uh, is that what got the attention of the FBI then or something else? Um, that's one thing. Uh, yeah. You know, actually, I got involved in scraping darknets, you know, just basically building my own search engine for them around 2012. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. idea was based on the EU. The European Union had a, had a, a drug task force to figure out, like, the Silk Road thing's all in the news. Do we really have to pay attention to it? Is this just a bunch of hype or is this a real problem? Mm-hmm. And the first thing they ran into is how do you actually browse this thing and find content on there? Um, so I built them a search engine to be able to just study what's out there and how big is it? Because if you think of, you know, at a country level, your national police force is trying to figure out, like, what do we need to pay attention to? Um, like right now it's opiates. So if you dedicate all your forces to opiate enforcement, and recovery, then some new drug comes up. You're kind of like, well, we've got our money. The problem is over here, but this new one's starting to come up. So how much, you know, resource allocation and how much do you spend on it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Then, so, yeah. So is Silk Road, it's just, it's gone now, right? So Silk Road was gone. Um and you can go read on the, the takedown to Slope Road. And then another one popped up, Slope Road 2 popped up. And then uh, that one went down um, because law enforcement again arrested the admin. And then Slope Road 3 came up and went down. And I, I think people are still, I think people have given up calling themselves Slope Road because it doesn't have a track record for, for longevity. Yeah, I was going to say, why stick with that name? It seems like it will kind of uh, make you a target of the FBI if you keep putting it out there. Um, So what do information security and privacy practitioners, is there anything that they should know about in the dark web to help them with their responsibilities, you know, in case uh, they have people on their network that are are going out to the dark net and maybe doing things that could put their network at risk? There, yes. I mean, there's multiple reasons for them to be out there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, think of it, you work for a company, you're trying to figure out who's trying to attack us or who might be targeting us because of X, Y, or Z, whether it's, you know, financial data or your projects or some new technology. And, so people go out hunting for new content to see did, did any of our content has it shown up on the dark net um, and or is anyone talking about our executives targeting them you know many companies have high profile executives that are out in public 
and you know the the person safety and response team has to make sure they're doing their they're covered for every possible risk. Um, when they go out there, like when the infosec and privacy people go out there to do the research, um, you know, it's it takes take precautions. You know, this is where I I help mostly has been helping agencies set up uh, virtual machines and distinct computing environments on separate networks so that, you know, should something happen, should they get infected with a malware or whatever, you can contain the, the spread of it really quickly. Um, and with virtual machines, it makes your life easier because you will get infected, everyone gets infected. Um, you'll download something or you run something, you don't know what it is, and, you know, it purports to be one thing, it's malware. Um, mm-hmm. With a virtual machine, you can recover really quickly. You can just roll back the last snapshot. That way you're, mm-hmm. you're knowing good snapshot and you're back up and running as opposed to having to reinstall hardware and all that from scratch. Right. So it sounds like it would be a good uh, additional tool to put into an information security and privacy pros uh, toolbox to have, but use it with caution and don't let uh, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing to, to go there um, and start poking around without knowing what could happen as a result then. Now, I've heard this too at some conferences actually where uh, some people have said, oh, well, businesses should use the dark web. They should, you know, like early in our conversation, you talked about how the BBC had a website down there. Uh, I actually have heard some people say, well, every every organization should have um, a site on the dark web as well. But I don't know. What do you think about that advice? That doesn't seem like it would necessarily be a good thing for all types of businesses, would it? Probably not. I don't <laughs> know that, um, you know, you, you go where the users are. So why mm-hmm. are all these businesses moving to Instagram? Because that's where all the users are. And they want to target, you know, specific segments of the audience that they use that. They're... Just sheer number-wise, there's not enough users on the dark web. Um, like legitimate users are willing to spend money on the dark web that would make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I think the B, I mean, the CA put it out there sort of just for, hey, look, we're cool. We're, we're the most advanced agency in the world. We have a dark net site. Um, mm-hmm. The Dutch police put up a site that was basically, you know, you're on the dark web. We're watching you. Don't be fooled thinking it's anonymous. Um, you know, it's mostly like a sort of PR and marketing that the reason they did that, the New York times and BBC, um, did it initially for secure sources as if you're anonymous and we don't know your IP address and mm-hmm. you can whistleblow or give us some sources for stories. Um, but there have been some other, I guess, traditional legitimate businesses who tried to set up a storefront and found that just a, it's, it's a lot of risk for the organization because they don't really understand mm-hmm. it. And then B, um, there's no commerce stamp in there. So, you know, there's no point in doing that. I mean, other than say it's cool on the dark net. Yeah. <laughs> seems like, uh, they wouldn't want it. Seems like the risk is much more overwhelming than the, the potential benefit, especially if you think you're going to have a retail site that you might want to put up that's legitimate. Well, we're almost to the end of our hour here already, but 
you know, what would be, uh, in like up to two minutes or so, what is a key point about the dark net and or the associated security and privacy risks that you really want our listeners to take away from listening to the show today? Sure. So the key point of the dark web is it's just technology. It's just software. It's just code. And I spend most of my time doing education and everyone seems to think, you know, the dark net is impenetrable wall. Nothing can happen. I don't understand it. I'm not smart enough to understand matrix math. And a lot of what I do is say, yes, you are. We will walk through it. And that, you know, the only way to get familiar with it is to find some safe way to basically just start playing with it. And that, you know, understand how it looks on a network perspective. Understand how it looks inside the browser. Understand how it looks inside an operating system. You know, people work with malware every day. They take precautions and they understand what it does. You can do the same thing with all the dark webs. The security and privacy risk is just, I'm going to use the word threat modeling here, uh, figuring out, like, what are your threats? The most likely threat in the dark web is that, you know, someone breaks into your machine through malware, through trickery, through however, and that if you have a separate machine and you're aware of it, then you're like, you know what, at worst, I lost whatever persona I created, meaning, like, I created a fake profile, my name's, you know, Jim, and I'm from Dubai or something, yet I'm really sitting here in um, Shenzhen in China. And, you know, the whole idea is that you just create a profile, maybe you've burnt that profile, you can go create another one. Um, They're easy to do. And that really, all the dark nets, are just it's the same software you use every day, just configured a little differently, and everyone can understand it. It just takes time to layer on the concepts, and there is some math involved, but no one should be afraid of math. Um, yes, everyone can understand it. I've and I've taught you know, yeah, young young kids in junior high school or primary school about matrix math and how to do TensorFlow and then how to do um, how to use darknets just so they're aware right. of it because they ask. Uh, you know, 12-year-old asks you, hey, what is this darknet thing? Um, right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it so much, Andrew. And I'm, I'm sorry we're out of time, uh, but I sure do appreciate you being on the show and helping us to understand better what the darknet is. So, Thank you for um, having me. This is fantastic, Rebecca. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, And for all of you listeners out there, please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Please let me know. And if you have other topics to suggest that I cover, just uh, send me an email at Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHarold.com. If you want to get in touch with Andrew, I look at the information out uh, about this show and you will find his bio and other information about how to get in touch with him. And until our next show, I urge all of you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information. And ask those that you do business with and who you work for, what are they doing uh, to protect the information you've entrusted to them? Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. 
Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Oh, 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 o